If you have your Bible, please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we're going to look at verse 14 this morning. Before I get started, I want to wish you happy Valentine's Day. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is I didn't necessarily plan that this, that, that this particular text was going to land on Valentine's Day. It just, it just so happened to land. And so I hope that it's not a killjoy for, uh, for all of you as we are walking through it. There's going to be plenty for us to learn even as we celebrate love in the air. I believe there's going to be plenty for us to learn in this text on this morning. And so let's read it together. You shall not commit adultery. Read it again. You shall not commit adultery. Obviously, there's a whole lot of places that we can go in this text. There's a whole lot of things that we can think about in this text, especially in a, in a hyper-sexualized culture like ours where, where a command like this is probably treated as one that you can possibly wave off. Uh, we certainly see the, the damage of stealing from someone. So when we read the Ten Commandments, we typically see that damage clearly, right? Thou shall not steal. You shall not steal. Do not steal. Okay, got it. And we certainly see in our culture and context that murder is obviously bad. And so when you hear the words, do not murder, you say to yourselves, yes, I get that. Do not murder. When you hear the words, honor your mother, honor your father, you shall have you say, your life in the land shall be long. You say, okay, yes, amen, I, I agree with that. We should honor our parents. But we live in a culture today where the idea of adultery and fornication, premarital sex, postmarital sex, is almost seen as optional, even in the Christian faith. It's something that we can do if we, if we feel really, really, really holy. Or if not, we can opt out and it's okay. God still loves us the same and still blesses us the same. And so no harm, no foul. This adultery thing, many will say, just feels a little nitpicky. Almost as if God is trying to be the fun police, so to speak, and rob us of some just laid back, loose enjoyment. And that could, be, that could not be rather further from the truth. Remember from the very beginning of our journey through the Ten Commandments, we said that one of the things that God is doing in these commandments is revealing his character. It is not just someone messing around in heaven, so to speak, spoiling our fun. It is, it is a sovereign king putting his holy and divine character on display. And remember when we first started our journey through the Ten Commandments, we also said that the ten are coming from someone with absolute authority and ownership of heaven and earth and all those who reside within it. And so we should keep those two things in mind, that God has absolute authority, absolute ownership of heaven, and that God, and that God is revealing his character, putting his holy and divine character on display in the law, in the Ten Commandments. We have to keep those two things in mind when we read, when we read these commandments, even the ones like verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Remember in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, Paul, uh, God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
In other words, these commands are not optional for those that call themselves Christians and name Christ as Lord. These truths are true of all of the commandments. These truths, those truths that I just mentioned, that God is sovereign, in control, has complete authority, and that God is revealing his divine character in the law. Those truths are true of all the commands, including this command, you shall not commit adultery. He says in verse 2 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God. And then he goes through those verses, and one of those verses is, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not fornicate. You shall not have premarital sex, postmarital sex, out, marriage out, or sex outside of marriage. That's the picture that should be painted when you hear those words. In fact, in Leviticus 18, we get a clearer picture of these words. Remember I said that, that, the, that the ten, that, that, that two commandments really summarize all of the commandments. Love the Lord your God and love neighbor itself. Remember that? And then we also talked about how the ten is an is a expounding of those two commandments. And then we talked about that there were 600 other commandments that are an expounding of the ten. Well, Leviticus 18 covers some of those 600 commands. In fact, Leviticus 18 is all about sexual ethics. It is an entire chapter dedicated to sexual immorality of all kinds. In fact, like all of the other commandments, including the 10, it is an unpacking of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, what does that mean, God? Leviticus 18 gives us the answer. In this chapter, in Leviticus 18, we hear the outlawing of sex in every single relationship outside of the committed, loving, covenantal bond of a husband and a wife. Sex before marriage. Sex after a marriage has ended. Sex among those of the same gender, sex among those of the same kin, sister, brothers, aunts, uncles, mothers, fathers, and on and on. In other words, you, in other words thou shalt not have sex with your father's wife, even if it's not your mother. Thou shalt not, it has rules where it says thou shalt not have sex with your brother's wife, with your sister's wife. Thou shalt not have sex with your daughter's daughter. It, go, it, it goes and it just unpacks all sort, sorts of different sexual, sexual behavior that is outlawed in chapter 18. We even find in the law the scripture outlaws prostitution and, and any form of sexual violence. But we don't just hear the prohibitions. In other words, we don't just hear the do nots when we read Leviticus 18. We also hear the whys we do not. And those whys are connected to the two truths that I mentioned regarding the ten. The character of God, that God is showing his character in the law, and that God is showing his authority in the law. Let's first look at the authority that's revealed in this command, thou shalt not commit adultery, or, or, the, or the chapter, Leviticus chapter 18. We hear these words several times in Leviticus 18, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. In a chapter about sex. So what should we make of that? What should we make of, of the idea that God is Lord? 
over and over and over, over repeated in this text regarding sex. This is what we should make of it. That God is Lord over us and therefore gets to determine how we live in every way, including sexually. Oftentimes when we move outside of the sexual ethics of the Bible, you will hear people justify it by saying, well, this is my body. And that is all fine and and dandy for you to feel that way if you believe there is no God. In fact, I would expect you to believe that way if you believe that there is no God. The problem is many of us who are saying that this is my body are also people saying that this is my God. And you cannot say that this is my body and this is my God and I will worship him. If that is what you are saying, then then this is what God is saying to you. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. In other words, everything that is outlined in Leviticus chapter 18, flee from it. Why? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. This is my body. No, you are not your own. Not only does the Lord lay claim to your whole life as your creator, he lays claim to your whole life as your redeemer. I am the Lord. In other words, I created you. This is my body. I am the Lord. I created you. But also, You were bought with a price. I created you and I gave my life for you. This is my body. I paid for it. I bought it. Paul is saying our willingness to cross the sexual boundaries that God has outlined for us is a declaration to Christ that you don't own me. We are declaring with our actions, Jesus, you don't own me. So again, it's okay, perfectly okay for those that say there is no God to proclaim that this is my body and act like there isn't one. But for those of us who proclaim that there is, we must also recognize that that same God that we proclaim is the God that has created us, the God that redeemed us, and thus the God that owns us. What are you saying with your life today? What are you saying with the, with the sexual ethics that you are living out today? Are you willfully going against God's sexual ethics, declaring with your actions, even if you are silent with your words, you do not own me? 
If you're, saying those, if you're saying that with your actions this morning, pray for grace. Pray for strength this morning that, 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 that God would allow you to turn away from a pattern of behavior that is undermining his authority over your life rather than reflecting it. Ask the Lord this morning to allow your life and your conduct to be a reflection of his truth. And that truth being he created you. He redeemed you. He paid for you. You were bought with a price. Your body is no longer your own. God is not, a, not just establishing his sovereignty in sexual ethics, though. He is revealing his character in the nature of our sexuality. He's revealing his character in the command, thou shall not or do not commit adultery. We reduce the call away from adultery and other forms of sexuality oftentimes to just a mere discussion about freedom or mere discussion about bondage, as many other cultures would do. However, there is more to this call. It is a call to a higher idea. It is a call to a higher value. It is a call to a higher character. In the very beginning of Leviticus 18, before God begins to lay out all of the sexual don'ts, do nots, prohibitions, he says this, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. There it is again. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. One of the first things that should jump out to you when we read that text together, uh, verses 1 through 5, is how uncommon the sexual ethic that God is preparing to lay out for Israel appears to be. He takes the first five verses to say, listen, you shall not do as they did when you were in Egypt. Don't do what Egypt did. That's where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in Canaan. Don't do what Canaan does. That's where you're going. But don't do, it, don't do what, what they did from the place that you left. Don't do what they're doing in the place that you're going. Here's the Lord saying sexually, don't live how the people live where you lived. And sexually, don't live how the people live where you're going to live. Don't live like either of them. Don't absor absorb their sexual conduct. Don't absorb their sexual behavior. Don't absorb their sexual statues. Don't absorb their, their, their identity and how their identity is wrapped in their sexuality. Don't absorb their worship and how their worship is wrapped in their sexuality. Don't abide in their sexual ethics. Don't embrace their sexual customs. Instead, in verse 4, he says, you shall follow my rules. You shall keep 
my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, verse 5 is interesting, 4 through 5 rather is interesting because he brief, basically is saying the same thing twice. Don't be like either of them, be like me. Don't follow them, follow me. Some of us may be saying at this point, but Lord, none of these people are living like this. This, this, this. Sexual ethic that you've outlined for us in Scripture, nobody's living like this. Nobody views sex this way. This is so outdated. None of these people view premarital sex this way. Who, who am I going to even find to date that thinks this way? None of these people view postmarital sex this way. I'm no longer married. Who am I going to find who even thinks this way? None of these people view sex among the same gender this way. None of these people view sex among distant relatives this way. None of these people view sex outside of marriage this way. Everybody's fooling around a little bit. Everybody in Egypt has women on the side. Everybody in Canaan has men on the side. Who in the world, who in the world lives like this? And to that, the Lord would say, precisely, it is because I am none of these people. It is because I am the Lord. You may even be saying, but it's so countercultural to, to, to even think about living like this, to even pursue this. And I mean, sex is all around us. And it's so accessible and it's so easy to, to reach. It's just it's so different. Saints of God is supposed to be different. You see, your sexual ethic is a reflection of your God, a holy God, a distinct God, the one and only true God amongst hordes of pagan gods. And so if this is a reflection of the one and only holy, true God, why should we expect it to look like every other culture's ethics? If it looks like every other culture's ethics, then it's nothing distinct or holy or separate about it. If your behavior and pattern of living is a reflection of the one and only true God, a holy and divine God that is distinct from everyone else, then it doesn't make sense for the behavior you're pursuing to be common. It only makes sense that the behavior and the pattern of living be uncommon. You see, when we downgrade our sexual ethics, knowing that God is revealing his character through those ethics, 
we are in fact saying God looks like, sounds like, and thinks like everybody else. Family, he does not. He is not. He does not look like everyone else. He does not think like everyone else. No, the call is to a higher idea, a higher value. The call is to the sacred institution of Christian marriage. Christian marriage isn't supposed to look like everything else. You know, you, some, of, some of you guys actually think that Christian marriage is no different than the institution that is in America. Couldn't be farther from the truth. It is a reflection of something entirely different, pointing to someone entirely different. The root of Christian marriage is a, it is a demonstration, a display, a proclamation of the gospel. It is pointing people to Jesus Christ. Christ the groom, the church the bride. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 that Christian marriage is not just an, an act of couples getting together, but it is at a higher level a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, Christ dying for his church, his church lovingly submitting to his, to his, to his continued death, to his sacrifice, Submitting to his resurrection, his ascension, and then his, his ever and eternal intercession. Marriage is a picture of that deeply spiritual act, that union between Jesus and his bride, the church. And so the sexual union is connected to a higher idea, a higher value. It is connected to the covenant that paints a picture of our union with Christ and thus carries far more weight and value and seriousness than what the world would apply to it. What is the, what is the message our sexual ethic is communicating? What is one message? One message is that sexual union cannot come apart from a whole person union. God's character reveals that his love is covenantal. He doesn't give part of himself. He gives himself to us, his whole self. He establishes covenant with those in which he has relationship with. Thus, the uniting of the deepest part of ourselves, which happens in sexual acts, cannot come apart from sacrificial covenant with one another. See, that's where adultery and other forms of sexual immorality get it wrong. It, it, it exploits and, and misuses God's plan for oneness. In fact, this is what C.S. Lewis says about that exploitation. He says, the Christian ideal of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and a wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual union, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating, 
It means, he continues, that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again, end quote. Did you hear that? He said there's nothing wrong with the, the pleasure that comes with sex. What's wrong is when we try to cheat God's demonstration of the gospel by trying to go around covenant in order to get it. It's like eating and chewing and tasting and then constantly spitting out the food, looking for the sensation without the substance. This is why God takes this seriously. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, Scripture says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The marring of his character. And and notice something here. Notice something here, saints. You know, what what ends up happening oftentimes is that we apply unjust weights to the female caught in the adultery. Notice that the judgment comes to the female and the male. That it's not just, hey, hey, player, player, look at you, man. You catching them all. No, he catch rocks too. The male and the female. Because both are marring the character of God in the act. Both are undermining the authority of God in the act. Both are cheapening the covenant of God in the act. And this is what we see in the act of adultery. And that's why the Old Testament penalty for it was so harsh. One more thing I want to highlight in this Leviticus text. And that's the, that's the blessing that is revealed in sexual ethics. Verse 5 in chapter 18, he says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. He shall live by them. I am the Lord. He shall live. Feels odd. A whole chapter dedicated to, te- uh, to sex, and yet here the Lord is saying, if you, if you, if you walk this out, then, then you're going to find life. You're going to live. In other words, in these statues, you will find life. In God's ordinances surrounding sexuality, you will find life. So our commitment to God's sexual ethic is not just because he owns us. And it's not just because it reveals his character. It's because there is a blessing and there is life in in following his ways, including sexually. We see it again later on in the text in Leviticus 18 in verse 24, beginning in verse 24. He says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean. 
so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who who does any Any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. All of the things that we talked about. Sexual acts outside of the covenantal union between one man and one woman. Every single one of them. God is saying nations that came in before you polluted the land. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. How do you ask? By not living according to the ethics and standards of verses 6 through 23. By giving themselves over to sexual liberation, doing everything with their body that they were tempted to do by saying, this is my body. You know, the biggest lie that sexual liberation tells us is that in it, we will find freedom. And that in it, we will find life. And it can feel freeing to cross those boundaries. And it can can feel feel life-giving to cross those boundaries at first. Then the next time you come back, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks, maybe six months, it feels a little less freeing. And a little less life-giving. And then you keep coming back and it feels a little less freeing and a little less life-giving. Eventually, it stops feeling free at all. It starts feeling like bondage. Eventually, it starts feeling like things that you can't let go of. It becomes chains rather than liberating. It becomes death rather than life-giving. You know, we've seen many ministers over the past couple of months fall drastically. Tragically. We saw another one. Um, There's a great report of a great Uh, One, a well-respected apologist, rather, um, from the past uh, that's spent decades, decades in ministry, decades sharing the gospel from coast to coast and from nation to nation. And and there was just this, this past week a tragic and terrible report that came out about his duplicitous life, living two lives, manipulating exploiting women all across this globe. 
And in that duplicitous life, there was one instance in which he told a woman, a woman that he helped financially and through that financial help told her that she had to have sex with him, he, that she owed him. He told her not to tell anyone because of all the souls that would be hurt if his secret, if their secret was ever revealed. Unfortunately, this man forgot about one soul, his own. And he forgot about the soul of that woman. And he forgot about the soul of the dozens of women in which he pulled the same trick. He left damage, untold damage as a result of it. You see, saints, it feels freeing, but it leads to terrors untold. As the scripture says, it poisons the land. It poisons the land. It poisons the land. Ministries are destroyed. Families are uprooted. Marriages destroyed. Instead, God gives us an alternative. Proverbs chapter 5, he says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. God doesn't remove that pleasure from the couple. He says, no, delight in one another. It says, before you is a cistern filled with life. You don't have to go to others. There's one there for you. Abide in it. Feed it. Pour into it. And you will find life there. You will find true freedom there. Last thing, how do we, how do we deal with it? How do we, how do we, how do we fight this? The commandment against adultery is ultimately a commandment protecting marriage. It's not necessarily about what it's against, it's about what it's for. It is intended to preserve the covenant. It's intended to preserve the relational intimacy and union associated with that covenant. It's intended to further the, the, the pictures and the proclamations of the gospel of Jesus Christ by showing that picture in a marriage. It's intended to further our, our true reflection of God's character by reflecting it in our sexual ethic. That's what it's intended to do. And it's for this reason that we see Jesus take this command further in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
when we look with desire and wish that who is not ours was ours, we are already moving in the wrong direction in terms of honoring our covenant. So what do we do? Verse 29 in Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better than you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What is he talking about? Is he saying you should cut your hand off? Is he saying you should pluck your eye out? It's not what he's saying. He's saying you should take drastic measures to preserve yourselves and according to the sexual ethics that God has outlined in his word. You should take drastic measures. You should not wait until we get to acting. You should be acting in your thinking. We should not wait till we get to doing. We should be fighting before our doing. We should be taking steps, drastic steps, changing phone numbers if you have to, dis, dis, uh, disabling accounts if you have to, relocating computers if you have to, turning on GPS if you have to. And listen, Nobody can tell you what you should be doing. You know, there's going to be somebody, somebody out there that's going to be like, well, I don't know, man. I mean, that's, that's a little too much, dog. I mean, you ain't got to do all that. Man, that's a little bit, yeah, that's a little bit too much, girl. You ain't got to be doing all that. I'm going to have that man uh, uh, all the time uh, up behind you chasing you. Listen, I don't know y'all relationship. That's like me trying to tell you how, how close to get to a venomous snake. I don't know how fast you are. Some of y'all might be quick. You know, you might be able to get right up on the snake. Some of y'all might be slow. Need a little more space. And listen, I want to honor that. So you take whatever measures you have to take, but be honest with yourselves in taking those measures. If everybody else watching the TV show, you say, nah, dog, I can't watch that. I just paint too many pictures in my mind. Okay. Totally fine. You know how close you can get to the poisonous snakes. So you take whatever steps you need to take. You pluck your right eye out. You cut off your right hand. You do whatever it is that you can. Why? Because this is not only my marriage that's at stake, but this is the nature of God that I'm declaring with my acts. This is my commitment to demonstrate that he owns me, that I am not my own, that he is mine and I am his. Here's another thing that comes up when we read this text, though. When we read this text and we hear these words from Jesus, and Jesus says that if you just look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You have already violated the act of Exodus 20 or the command of Exodus 20, and you deserve the penalty of death in Leviticus 20. When you hear those words, your heart should sink. No, mine, mine, mine does. 
Because when, when, when I hear those words, I realize that, man, there, there has certainly been a time in my life where I have looked upon a woman with lustful intent, that, that I have looked upon a woman with lustful thoughts in my heart. What do I do with that? same God that tells you that you have committed the act of adultery, if you look at a woman with lustful thoughts in your heart, if you look at a man with lustful thought in your heart, it's the same God that declares that there is now therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit and life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. It is the same God that declares that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the same God that declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yet they have received Christ as a propitiation for their sins. They have been justified through his death. It's the same God that takes all of our sin and rescues us and delivers us through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. In other words, even as this this text, these words are, are hitting at our hearts and exposing us for the sinners that we are, there is good news. And the good news is that there is a Savior that has died for sinners like us. It doesn't matter what your, it doesn't matter what the past looks like for you. you. Listen, man, you could have committed adultery yesterday. I'm talking to you. There is hope at the cross of Jesus Christ for you. There is redemption at the cross of Jesus Christ for you. There is freedom and life and salvation at the cross of Jesus Christ for you. What does it require? It requires that you come. Come and kneel before the Savior. Come and trust him with your life. Believe upon him. Accept his, uh, his sacrifice. Embrace him as your Lord. Turn from your life of sin. And in so doing, you'll find true life. Let's pray. God, we love you.